to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for March 2018. I am writer hyphen. I have two words for you. Ghostwriter. I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi, I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen evergreen child of the 80s, Rochelle Semenovich. And our special guest will be joining us a little later in the show. But before we get to him, we have seen some films this month. Rochelle... What have we seen? We saw Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg's spectacular sci-fi love letter to the 80s. Based on Ernest Cline's 2011 novel, the story is set in a future where citizens escape from dingy high-rise trailer parks by entering a virtual reality known as the Oasis. This gaming world was created by the socially awkward 80s nerd James Halliday and is played in flashbacks by Mark Rylance. Just before his death, Halliday announced he's hidden an Easter egg inside the VR world and whoever finds it will gain access to his billion-dollar fortune. A teenage orphan, Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan, sets out to win the challenge and along with his small band of mates and spunky pink-haired love interest, he takes on thuggish corporate overlord Nolan, played by Ben Mendelsohn, and there's a kind of economic and social rebellion. Lee, did this adventure take you into a better version of reality? No. <laughs> no. Really? <laughs> it really didn't. I am I am a huge Spielberg fan. I, I genuinely subscribe to the idea that he is one of the greats. I, I, I grew up on Hook. I defend 1941. I've even found positive things to say about the Terminal and the BFG. But this is, I, I, I cannot, I'm, I'm stepping off for this film, I'm stepping off the bus. This is, for me, the worst Spielberg film by Seriously. a country mile. I, I do not know how this film got made. It is so bad. I don't know if we can be friends anymore after oh, no. this. This might be our first big fight. <laughs> I just had so much fun in this film. I thought it just was so playful, had a light touch. Spielberg's 71, but I think he's still a master entertainer. He's so great with his superbly blocked action sequences, chases and battles. I did think it was a bit bloated and overlong and I did feel like the game itself was much more vibrant and exciting than the real live uh, action sequences. Mm. But yeah, I, I just really, really had a ball. Well, that, I mean, and that's you good. hated it. I did hate it. Um, this is the exact opposite reaction I thought we were both going to have to this <laughs> film. We haven't urinated in the same fountain at any point during a lightning storm, have we? <laughs> no, so. Um, <laughs> no, so I haven't read the book that this is based on, but there was a page going around on social media and I tried very hard not to judge the book or the film based on this page because it seemed like the sort of thing you would take out of context to show that a thing was bad. It was just a litany of pop culture references without context, just naming things. And I thought with context, maybe there's something to it. And for me, there was not. There was nothing undergirding it. I, so I'm, I might be wrong. But I don't think there were more than a couple of pop culture references in this pop culture heavy film that came from a time before Spielberg was making films. And I think that's important because from Jaws onwards, Spielberg was the name in pop culture. His influence was felt far and wide. And this is a film about people who have grown up loving a period of pop culture from up on high he was not engaged in pop culture the way the rest of us were because he was pop culture. I, I think you can still love it and make it, but I don't think he can make this film. I think he was the wrong person for this film. I think perhaps being a child of the 80s, this film was, was made for me and I just really enjoyed being in that virtual reality world. It will be really interesting to see how the kids of today um, take to this film if yeah. they feel like it's just their parents 
you know, kind of sense of humour and sensibility or if they're able to see that it's about a game that was created by a nostalgic character. Yeah. Oh, look, uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see whether those 80s, you know, these kids certainly know a lot about John Hughes films and, and Atari <laughs> games from, like, the late 70s, which is... I did not buy it at all, but one of the biggest problems I had with this film is that it's not a love letter to pop culture. I, I didn't feel. It, it's a fetish. It's not about admiring something and having a true love for it. It's about reciting as many details as you can, and people are waved through or dismissed based on how well they can list things they've memorised, which is not how you love something. I mean, there's... It is how people... Some people love things, and I'd, I'd should, argue that it's a world um, created by someone with with Asperger's, and the world kind of reflects that. Yeah, that's probably true. I don't know, but should we be celebrating that? I mean, <laughs> it's there's some wishy-washy stuff about, oh, it's better to live in the real world, but the film doesn't can't even commit to that. <laughs> you know, it's I don't think it buys it for a second. It's Tuesdays all about being Tuesdays and Thursdays. Oh, Let's don't even start me on that. That's, <laughs> that's a whole... I mean, there's so much to dig into with this film that... It just didn't hit me on any level. I was not impressed by the visuals. I, I didn't feel sucked into the world. And I didn't like anyone in the film. Mm. And I don't understand the point of it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> Are you really, though? <laughs> <laughs> I am. And what's our next film, Lee? Well, our next film is The Other Side of Hope. Akikura's Maki's purported last film is the exact kind of deadpan melon comedy, copyright 2018 me, we've come to expect from the Finnish director. Like his last film, 2011's Le Havre, he's once again consumed the refugee crisis. A Syrian asylum seeker has landed in Finland and comes across a middle-aged man who has decided to buy a failing restaurant. Like all of his films, it's dry and wry and incredibly funny and uplifting. Rochelle, are you a fan of this finished film, or are you simply waiting for it to finish? <laughs> oh, dear. Thank you. Well, it's a complex answer. I was definitely ready for it to finish when it did. And is it really uplifting and hilarious? Oh, I, I don't so. know if you're misrepresenting it. It's, <laughs> I think it's a film that's very much like pickled herring. Uh, it's uh, not to my taste, but um, a lot of people like it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think Kurosmaki is an optimist, and I think it's hard to see that because he is so deadpan and misanthropic. Mm. But he really loves people, and he's very hopeful, and his films have always been about taking care of people who are displaced. Mm, you know, once mm. upon a time it was about kooky musicians on road trips. Now it's about refugees, and I think that's something that's very important to him. He really does care about people, and and I think uh, I, th I think the restaurant owner looks a lot like him. And I, I think... actually had to check if it was him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The story of the Syrian refugee here was really. I thought, well done. It was touching and, and depressing as hell, really. I think it just conveyed the absurdity and difficulty of trying to prove that you are a genuine asylum seeker in a society that's just set up to try and get rid of you as a problem. Mm. I think it's a film that really details that experience very well. And I like the way it assembled the kind of makeshift family in the restaurant mm. of misfits and their attempts to, to run this failing restaurant that looks like the most unappetising restaurant oh, in, in the world. I was in tears when they were trying to do the Japanese cuisine. <laughs> it's just... Wasabi? Uh, oh, God, that killed me. That killed me. But it is, it's, it's you know, 
It's very Scandinavian. It's got a very Scandinavian sense of humour. And speaking of Scandinavia, The Square is our next film. It's set in a modern art museum in Stockholm and centres on the gallery's handsome head curator Christian, played by Clay's Bang. He drives an electric car, gives money to the homeless when he has cash on him, and he says all the right things about the purpose of art and the importance of social justice. But when Christian's wallet and phone are stolen by grifters, his plan to get his possessions back involves accusing an entire building full of people of the theft. The resulting chaos is so disruptive that his career comes into crisis when he overlooks a major public relations disaster at the gallery. The fifth feature from writer-director Ruben Erstland, whose breakout film was Force Majeure in 2014, which I absolutely adored, The Square is an ambitious and sprawling art world satire, full of provocative set pieces skewering human behaviour and showing the moral hypocrisy of the creative classes. The Square won the 2017 Palme d'Or at Cannes and was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars recently. Lee, did The Square fill the art-shaped hole in your heart? It did, and what a hole it is. Uh, <laughs> no, no one dismantles modern life the way Ruben Oslin does. I, I was speaking to a friend of ours who felt the film was making fun of art and artists. I may be mischaracterising him a bit there, but I, I really think that Oslin makes fun of the way that we misuse art, the way we, we, we use it in dishonest ways. We talk a big game and we never follow through. Like Characters in this film are creating artificial spa- safe spaces but they fail to provide them in the real world when it counts to people who really need it. I think he's tapped into something about modern life Mm. that is very relatable and very identifiable and very funny. Like Force Majeure, which I also love, it's got that shaggy dog feeling to it. It pushes past several natural endings where you think, why aren't you stopping here? Until it discovers that ideal final note. And you're like, oh, yes, that that, you're correct. That was the right place to stop. I'm on board with you, yeah. Yeah, he knows that to really depict the social dynamics of a situation, you have to push beyond that natural end mm. that feels awkward because the awkwardness is the point. Yeah. The th- one of the things I liked about this film and Force Majeure is that I think it's really hard to completely condemn the characters, mm. the male characters in this, who make some questionable moral decisions because they're situated within their families or their workplaces in such a way that you see how difficult it can be to know exactly what is the right thing to do in in a specific social situation. There's so many ideas explored here, aren't there? Mm, there are, and like, and he packs them in, but there are some classic moments in this film, particularly the one depicted on the poster that centers the film that is just one of the most extraordinary scenes I've ever seen on film and unlike anything else I've seen and so true yeah it's so true I mean I can point to several news stories from the past couple of months where basically the exact same thing has happened when you think no one would act like that in films people jump up and they do the right thing no one sits awkwardly because mm-hmm. they don't know how to react in a situation in real life they do and no film has depicted that better than, than this one, I think. Yeah. I think even if you hated this film, there would be some scenes in here that you would never have seen before and mm. are completely unforgettable. Totally. Um, I think it's a little bit long and I think it is trying to do a bit too much. It kind of loses its way a little bit towards the end. But I still loved it. Mm. Well, staying in Europe, the death of Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1953 and Stalin 
is dead. His former underlings have become engaged in a fight for power with Khrushchev, Malenkov, Beria, Zukov and others wrestling for power. Director Armando Iannucci does not shy away from how horrific these people really were, even as he draws comedy from the absurdity of their lust for power. But what else would you expect from the creator of The Thick of It, Veep and In the Loop? Rochelle, did you find this film moved at a good pace or was it Russian? It definitely wasn't Russian. I um I was very ready for it to finish. I just found oh, wow. it so black. The events it depicts are just so brutal and horrible and Stalin was just such a monster and the people around him were just so disgusting. It just didn't tickle my funny bone. Although I did love the loop in the loop. I know all, all great defences of comedy come back to Hannah Arendt, but uh, when she talked about the banality of evil, I think she was also talking about the bureaucracy of evil. Mm. And I find that Iannucci does not shy away from the murder and the rape and the torture and all the horrible things they do mm. to people. But what he does is he shows that they're not master villains. Uh, they're really petty, small men who just happen to have a lot of power. Mm. And I think comedy is maybe the perfect medium in which to express just how small and bureaucratic the, these guys are and that they have no master plan. I think part of it is that he doesn't have them speaking in Russian. They're all speaking in their natural accents. Like you've got Bashemi and his American accent uh, and a, a Brummy inflection from Jason Isaacs. It's so apt because mm. these ultra-serious biopics always have them speaking in not Russian, but a Russian accent. Yes. And it has the appearance of accuracy, but it's just empty calories. And having them talk naturally really demystifies them, I think. Mm. And it, I found the whole thing incredibly funny. And it is incredibly dark. Mm. I mean, it has to be. Yeah. But I find this depiction of, you know, I, I'll say evil, more compelling than the US House of Cards style of conniving duplicity. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't buy that, oh, we've all got a master plan and we're moving the chess pieces into place. It's just people running around trying yeah. to pull one over on everyone else around them. Maybe I found it so dark and depressing because it did feel so real it's yeah. like yeah i can see that this is the way people like putin or trump might actually conduct their um governments and yeah. that is so scary yeah absolutely it's terrifying <laughs> and accurate <laughs> moving along to a film that is impossible to segue from uh the death of stalin Mary Magdalene. This stars Rooney Mara as one of the few women mentioned by name in the Gospels and known for her close relationship with Jesus, who's played here by a bearded and mumbling Joaquin Phoenix. We first meet Mary as a sensitive young woman living in a small fishing village where she doesn't fit in with her traditional, very male-dominated family. She doesn't want to marry or have children, but yearns for something deeper. And when she meets the travelling teacher and his band of disciples, she's drawn to join their radical social movement, travelling to Jerusalem where Jesus... Well, I won't tell you what happens there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> From the UK-Australian team who made the King's Speech, Mary Magdalene is the second feature by Garth Davis, who directed Lion. It skips the greatest hits of the Jesus story, or at least comes at them from the side angle and only shows what Mary might have seen. It's a quiet, sensitive film about a radical woman, and you can understand why some circles aren't that welcoming of it. But I found it really beautiful and thoughtful and certainly plausible. There's no doubt that sexism and misogyny are part of why Mary is falsely known as a prostitute and has never really been considered as one of Christ's 
disciples. Mm. Yeah. So I really like this film. Did you see it, Lee? I didn't. Uh, I am fascinated at the idea of uh, Joaquin Phoenix mumbling through a film, <laughs> so I may have to check this out. Yeah, he, he really has his uh, charm factor turned down to the very lowest setting it can possibly go to. I always say that I'll watch anything he's in because I just find him so magnetic. Mm. Yeah, it was an interesting decision to turn that right down here when you're supposed to be playing one of the most charismatic characters in history, but maybe that's the point. Mm. You know, as someone who was raised an evangelical Christian and now I consider myself to be an atheist, I was really interested at the way this film was able to have it both ways. You mm. could believe in this Jesus as a genuine teacher, um, spiritual teacher, Jesus Christ, son of God, or perhaps the film is even a little bit more um, supportive of the idea that he's just a spiritual teacher who was ahead of his times. But, yeah, it's interesting that the film manages to do that in a really plausible way. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, I'll check it out. It does sound it does sound quite interesting. Always up for a good Jesus movie. <laughs> <laughs> So off the back of our discussion on Ready Player One and Steven Spielberg as both admirer and progenitor of pop culture, can you be both fan and maker? Is there any cognitive distance that comes with admiring the classics and being part of modern classics? The number of people who can answer that question is very small, but we've managed to get our hands on one of them as we welcome this month's guest, Noah Segan. Noah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and I'd like to suggest that I may in fact be the the only person qualified to answer this question. Oh uh, wow! <laughs> pro- probably at least well at least best qualified I would say. So I, I, I'm glad glad you got me. Oh, we're very glad we got you too. So so what is <laughs> so uh, are we right? Is there a cognitive dissonance? Because you're you're a huge film fan and you've been in uh, like at least a couple of films that people will be watching long after we've all become worm food. I, I don't think that there is. I, I don't think, I mean, can, can you think of, you know, not to, not to, not to turn it around and, mm. and, uh, and try to play gotcha, but have you ever met somebody who works in movies who doesn't love movies? Cause I haven't, I haven't met a caterer who's working on a movie set who doesn't love food and movies or, you know, an electrician who doesn't love plugging in lights and also movies. Like, you know, <laughs> like, well, this is an extreme example, but I know Werner Herzog at least claims to not watch many films, which kind of fits for him. <laughs> well, he, he, he may, I, I, that, that doesn't surprise me, but does he claim to not like cinema? Does he, does he claim that he dislikes Movies or just he just not watch a lot of movies because I definitely don't watch the same amount that I watched during my my formative years. You mm. know, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I, I have the patience for things that are, you know, probably that I didn't have the patience for 10 or 15 years ago. But, mm. you know, I, I, I wouldn't I, I don't think I would ever say that that my my love for for for, for movies has waned. But but to turn your turning around of the question back around on you, you're, you're coming Damn. at it from... Uh, this is like Inception. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we're going, we're going deep. Um, so, so you're coming at it from uh, people who make films love films. So, of course, this is natural. But we're coming at it from... We're film fans. So, like, if you've... I, I assume you grew up watching Star Wars. Did you watch it and now you go, hey, I'm connected to this world that I used to admire? N- no. Not not while I'm enjoying, you know, uh, uh, watching 
watching Star Wars. No, I, I'm not thinking about, you know, I mean, I, I, I might I might turn to the person who I'm watching with. And, you know, if I have some interesting piece of trivia that 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 they might find funny, maybe I'll I'll, I'll drop that in there. I mean, I definitely you know, I'm, I'm friends now with people who have been working at Lucasfilm for years. And and obviously, you know, you, you hear you hear things like like trivia and, and, and jokes and things. But the impression that Star Wars made on me when I was, I don't know, whatever, however old I was when I saw the first, you know, when I, when I saw it, eight years old, nine years old, that impression has not hasn't changed. It's only been augmented, added to. So you're you're not watching uh, Luke Skywalker and going, hey, I now I know I save his life. There you go. I uh, I got him out of a tight spot. <laughs> um, I don't. I think that that the beauty of cinema and a few other I think media's you know mediums, uh, uh, music I think is a really big one. You know, you, you it's very easy to attach their personal meaning. Uh, or empathy that you have for them to how you saw them. You know, it's an experience. It's experiential. And so I think that we're very lucky in that our favorite movies can be our favorite movies no matter what. Maybe you met the guy who made the movie and he was a jerk. Maybe you met the guy who recorded your favorite song and he was kind of like an asshole to you. I mean, you hear those stories all the time, right? And you go, you know, but I still can't stop listening to my favorite record or I can't stop watching my favorite movie because it's it's bigger than it becomes bigger than, you know, that's like what's so great about something like Star Wars is that there's this sense of like ownership that the audience gets that in in the case of Star Wars and and and, and, uh, and Lucasfilm it is very nurtured. And um, and because of that, I think that you don't find yourself handicapped, if you will by anything other than your personal experience you know mm. you get to choose how you interpret it you get to choose how you own it Noah, i read something about you wanting to be a cinematographer when you were a kid or um that was kind of your entry to the world of making movies does that influence the way you work now having been so obviously um taken with the visual side of things to start with absolutely a hundred percent it, it i was i was very lucky in that I got to spend time working as as a, a camera assistant and um, spent a lot of time uh, on, I, as they say, the other side of the camera, that very silly phrase. And it's been immeasurably useful uh, as an actor, as, a, as, a, as just somebody who watches movies, you know, because I have mm. a, a, a bit of a vocabulary and, and some frame of reference for what's what's going on what's bringing the image to us that makes it really fun you know mm. that, that that's just another another layer and also it makes my job easier because i feel comfortable talking to the cameraman i feel comfortable with with what they're doing i have a frame of reference for how they're working and be, because you do you do work very closely with with cameramen you know you've got you've got these these uh, these guys who will run up to you and they'll measure you know how far you are from the camera with a piece of, of measuring tape um, they're and they're constantly looking at you. They're looking at you as much as anybody would ever look at you because that's their <laughs> job. And so, you know, you 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 do sort of want to have a rapport. And I think kind of understanding their job description is is a big big step towards that. Mm. Is is there any uh, type of film that you weren't a fan of before that now having made some, you're like, I mean, I imagine you're a film noir before fan before you made 
brick that is there something like that where you, you, you now have a new appreciation for, for some aspect of cinema that you didn't before? Oh man. I mean, that's, that's a tough, that's a, that, that's a tough question because I was so young when I started, when I started working in, in movies. Um, it's sort of the only real, real job, you know, definitely the only career I've ever had and, and kind of one of the very few jobs I've ever done. And so I got to kind of grow up cherry picking and enjoying all of the recommendations that the people I was working with gave me. But one of the very cool things that you get when you're an employee on a movie, when you're like an actor or a cameraman, is you get sort of an inside track into the brain of the filmmaker. And they go, hey, man, here's what inspired me to make this movie. And so you get, you know, your list of, in the case of a movie like Brick, of course, you get, you know, a list of, of, of Ryan's favorite uh, detective movies. <laughs> um, and, you know, you maybe get some insight you didn't have into that. But, you know, it can get even more esoteric. I remember, and I can't even for the life of me think of, remember them because they made very little impact on me. But I, I spent a while on the recommendation of a filmmaker watching a whole bunch of, like, modern Turkish movies. <laughs> and I had a very tough time. I guess that there is a movement of, of Turkish cinema kind of going on in, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the filmmaker I was working with at the time was very into this movement. And it didn't resonate with me, but I'm very glad that I, that I got to spend some time watching, you know, whatever it was, four or five uh, of, of this particular vintage of Turkish cinema, because otherwise I, I would have never, you know, and mm. I wouldn't even be able to have an opinion or go went in one ear and out the other, you know? So, so that, that's a very helpful uh, aspect of, of being a worker on a movie. Are you still able to sit down and, and enjoy films or is it a bit bit of a busman's holiday now? Are you a bit like, oh, I've just come off, you know, and 10-hour day at work. I don't really want to jump back into that world. I've never heard busman's holiday, but... Uh, I think it's I an English that. expression. I really like it. It's really <laughs> good. I'm going to throw that around a lot. Um, <laughs> although here we call, them a bu- we call them bus drivers. A bus uh. driver's holiday sounds good too, though. Bus drivers, we would say bus drivers vacation, I guess, which is, <laughs> has, is far less lyrical than busman's holiday. Um, Most of Australian culture is like bits cribbed from America and England. And sometimes we have to go through a, like, do we say windscreen or windshield here? What, what, what do we do again? So this, <laughs> but it would translate to bus windscreen. driver's vacation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that answers that question. Windscreen. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, right. Movies are the thing that I love more than anything else next to actual people. And in (laughs) fact, most people, I love movies most, more than most people. Probably more than like a dozen people on earth, I love movies. So, uh, it, it, they're not ruined for me. I mean, you know, there, there is a certain inside baseball kind of thing where, you know, maybe if you do, but this is more, it's more, I was going to say start disliking somebody, but it's like, I mean, it doesn't take having to work on movies to like not want to watch Woody Allen movies anymore. You know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it's like, I, I watched Woody Allen movies and I sort of enjoyed them and then I kind of stopped enjoying them and now I really don't enjoy them. <laughs> and, and that's just as like a normal person. That's not, I'm not a special movie person for, for that. I'm just like a human being who's made an adjustment in, in, in his, in his taste. Um, 
So I, I'm sure that there are specifics, you know, like real specifics, like I don't like that guy or, or something like that, you know, mm. but like by and large, you know, I, I, uh, I still manage to find them incredibly fascinating. And, and, you know, I generally don't watch movies when I'm working, uh, but that's only because you really don't have time. You're like, I've just worked 15 hours and uh, maybe I'll just like, read three pages of a book because it'll help me go to bed so I can wake up in seven hours and go make this movie, you know? Mm. Do, do you feel an incredible pressure to keep on top of all the, you know, great movies that are coming out, let alone the classics that we've all missed in the past? Um, it, do you feel that sort of pressure to keep up? I used to feel pressure to stay on top of, uh, you know, new releases and current movements. And then uh, I had a baby. <laughs> yeah. And and, and that, that's what changed it. So just like a totally normal human experience <laughs> is what is what changed. It had nothing to do with my job. You know, I used to go to, we have a, a great theater out here called the New Beverly, mm. which um, uh, uh, has been family owned and operated for, I don't know, 25 years and was recently purchased by Quentin Tarantino and he helped run it and, and, and keep it going. And, and it was still managed by, uh, by, by the family that had managed it for a long time. And they play double features on 35 millimeter every night. And up until the baby was born, I was going out, you know, once or twice a week you know, mm-hmm. to this theater and seeing a double feature of, you know, some some favorite films or some movies that I hadn't seen. Uh, and those were, rep- that's repertory cinema. So that's mm-hmm. not even counting, you know, somebody saying you need to go see this new movie that came out by a filmmaker who you don't know, but you should. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would do that as well. Uh, but now I have a baby and I don't do that anymore at the moment for the last seven months. <laughs> Damn life getting in the way of our movie watching (laughs) but also a lot of that but again that's that's like a really like that's like a normal human thing and and frankly you know i i you know the baby goes to bed pretty early like you know we're we're getting back into it we're we're reclaiming our time uh with cinema as they say okay noah who have you picked for this month's filmmaker of the month i have picked Dennis Hopper. That's a fascinating choice. Uh, should I read anything into the fact that he is an actor turned director? Is there some some wish fulfillment going on there? Uh, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. I wouldn't even call it wish fulfillment. I would call it manifest destiny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, so what is it about Hopper of uh, of all the filmmakers? Why him? Uh, well, I, I I think that the the, the work that he did and, and the people that he worked with are the most influential for, for me personally. They, they, I think that, that when, when you kind of look at or when I look at the, the tree and the, and, the, and the branches of what has impacted my work and, 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 and what I like, Hopper is the trunk for the hmm. most part. And I think that, you know, that, that, that we owe a lot to him today for what we think of when we just think of like independent cinema, when we just think of, you know, how indie movies are made and sold and shown, you know, a lot of that can be directly tracked back to to Easy Rider, um, Mm. which, you know, he made sort of uh, uh, out of, uh, I would like to think out of a bit of frustration 
um, with, you know, having been an, an actor and a character actor and, and, and really wanting, I, I think, to say something about cinema and the world at the time. Uh, and then when he did, it created a groundswell. It created not only a, not only a cinematic movement, but very much so a, a game plan for how people like us make movies going forward. Um, and that's like, I mean, what is that? It's like 50 years ago, man. I mean, that's like all, that's, that's, that's a lot of staying power. Mm. Yeah. It was, uh, it was interesting to, uh, we, I have to confess, uh, and Rochelle, I hope you don't mind me, uh, dobbing oh, you in you're here. Gonna out me. I am going to out you. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we both watched it for the first time for this podcast. Neither of us had seen it before, if you can believe that. Uh, wow. yeah, it was Tell just me what you thought. Oh, I, I feel like I need to watch it like five more times to properly appreciate what's going on. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's an incredible film. Um, mm. It's a lot more experimental. I mean, I should have, in retrospect, I should have anticipated this, but the sort of fast edits, those really experimental, you know, what, what can we do with the medium? Let's, let's, let's mess it up. Just aesthetically, it was, uh, it was a trip. But I mean, so much of that, and, and this is, you know, why I kind of say I think it, it I, I find it to be a fascinating movie. So much of it, if you watch Easy Rider and think of new wave movies, like a French new wave movies, mm. it it's sort of made like a French new wave movie. You know, yeah. it's like got this weird kind of, you know, all these like kind of like weird handheld moments. And I don't know if the whole movie was, but I know that the big like cemetery sequence was like super 16 or 16 millimeter handheld. And, and then uh, uh, all those fast edits, all those like kind of jumpy cuts, you know, are very uh, Godard, you know, very like uh, early 60s Godard. Mm. And so, you know, there's something like kind of it's interesting because I feel like those movies were trying to get they were they were so heavily influenced by by those sort of tough detective noir films and then they took them and they kind of gave us back something that we that we then took and 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 used for for our new wave mm. Rochelle, what did, what did you make of it well i i had huge expectations of it being sort of this dreamy um depiction of the counterculture and i don't think i'd realized how how sort of violent and devastating it it got towards the end and the way it sort of depicted this this festering resentment of the mainstream towards the counterculture and I just thought it was a really a powerful film on that level it just captured the mood so well of these of these dreamy drifters and I do have to say that I I was kind of surprised at Dennis Hopper's performance he really did seem to be out of it for the entire film (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of I don't know how he managed to direct a film so well when he was obviously so out of it (laughs) well did you did you guys watch uh uh the last movie uh yes Mm, I did (laughs) (laughs) yeah the uh I mean the last movie is sort of um and there's this incredible incredible uh uh documentary about the last movie called the American dreamer hmm. um, that is almost better than, than the movie itself, sort of in the way that like burden of dreams is kind of better than Fitzcarraldo. Right. Mm. Um, but uh, um, you know, he made after easy rider, he went and made this movie called the last movie that I think it was in Peru. Mm. And he kind of like disappeared into the jungle to go make this movie. And it was an incredible, massive disaster. 
Mm. And and I don't know that he really approached it any differently than he approached Easy Rider. There was just some weird lightning in a bottle thing that happened where he was like able to make Easy Rider into a cognizant. And also, I think it was it was it was the timing. You know, I think we forget that like, you know, we kind of jumble this this era of like late '60s, early '70s all together. But I think for a lot of these people, by 1969, by the year that Easy Rider was 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 made and came out. They were over it. Mm. People were mm. over the hippie shit. They were over peace and love. This was like the beginning of the dystopia. You know, the 70s were like an incredibly dystopian time. And um, and I think that this was this this was the harbinger of that. I mean, you could argue that like Bonnie and Clyde was a harbinger of that. I mean, there were you know, that it was it was a relatively slow burn. But I think Easy Rider is sort of is the statement about how fucked up the world is mm. after the hippie movement. And so we think of it as the hippie movement. It wasn't. I think it was the 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 fall from that. I think it was the decline. Mm. Yeah, I mean he's, uh, yeah, it's very much that the way the the film ends very much represents, you know, the way Hunter S. Thompson would always talk about those ideals dying sort of with Nixon and Watergate and everything in the 70s and with the last movie, you know, the studio wanted another easy rider and they got one. They just it just that's what another Easy Rider looks like. Um. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and, and Easy Rider is, I mean, and last movie is, is an incredible film. You know, there's like the, there's, there's the, I haven't seen it in, in, in years, but I remember, you know, so many of, of, of these movies, his movies and, and movies of that era having to watch on, we had a, a, a video store in New York called Kim's. Uh, and there were a few, there were a few branches of this video store. And it was like, uh, it was all VHS. It was where you could find movies that were never printed properly mm. um, or released properly. And I remember before last movie had a, a re-release, which it has now, I remember watching it with like Spanish subtitles <laughs> hard coded onto it on a VHS. Like somebody had recorded it off TV in some, some country that spoke Spanish and that was what I got. And it was pan and scan and, you know, but I remember like the end of it, He's like in a tiger cage and he's talking about how he how he loved him. And he's talking about like he's talking about James Dean, I think. Mm. And he's talking about this guy we loved and, 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 and how he died. And he's sort of like if he had lived, he would have been the, you know, basically the Messiah is, is the way he's talking about this guy. And it's incre- and it's and, and you you get an insight into I think last movie was was 74. Is when it finally got finished, is what I want to say. I'm um, not sure. I, IMDb has it as um, 71. 71. But yeah. yeah, 71. So it was, it was not that long after, right? Mm. So he's shooting this thing in 1970, right? Mm. And so he's shooting it literally the year after his movie comes out. And, and very long story short, uh, um, uh, you know, it's the same it's the same era. It's like the world, as far as he's concerned, the world is still probably ending. You know, he's mm. still thinking back to 1950 something and the, the birth of, of this movement that is now dying. Hmm. Mm. And this movie kind of ruined him, didn't it? it? It sort of made him a pariah in Hollywood and he didn't direct again till the 80, till 1980, I think with mm. out of the blue. Uh, yes, yeah. He, I think, you know, really spent the 70s working on, you know, working on weird movies um, mm. because that was what was being made. He had sort of, like I said, he had sort of given birth to this movement. And then 
talk about tragic, right? It's like the guy gives birth to this movement. Now everybody's making movies sort of with this spirit. Everybody wants to see movies with this spirit and nobody wants to let him make one. Mm. Um, and so that's when he does, you know, movies like Kid Blue or, or Tracks or The American Friend, you know, or, or I guess. Matt Dog Morgan. Yes, Mad Dog Morgan. Yes. Yeah, speaking of him disappearing into a jungle in Peru, I think every country has a he, Dennis Hopper, disappears into a jungle myth. <laughs> how Can I ask, how is Mad Dog Morgan... Uh, uh, Received here? Yeah, how is it thought of? In, is it considered to be a classic in Australia? Yeah, I'd say an eccentric classic. A kind of It's on the margins, but it kind of got rehabilitated with a film called not quite Hollywood, which was a documentary yes, about the the um, exploitation films in the 70s. And um, I think Dennis Hopper appears in that film talking about it and Philippe Mora, the director, you know, has a certain reputation. So, yeah, it's not forgotten here at all. And Dennis Hopper has a reputation for being completely crazy on the set there as he was on, I think, a lot of films. <laughs> well, night, the, so, night we called it a day. He came back to Australia and made another film, and that has a lot of uh, a lot of notorious, a lot of notoriety around it. So, yeah, he's uh, he's got a bit of a reputation in Australia, I think. Yeah, well, it sounds like he's got a similar reputation there as he does here. It sounds <laughs> like he's he's in the same uh, same boat. Yeah, that that film was was like a lot of these movies, but specifically, I mean, sort of alongside. I think Kid Blue was definitely sort of lost. Tracks, uh, you know, was I think kind of kind of is is considered to be a a, a classic. And of course, the American Friend is like you know very very has always been renowned, mm. you know. But uh, Mad Dog Morgan, I remember watching it. It was it was it was one of those movies that was like released by Anchor Bay here, which you know was was always a sign that like no one else was going to release it. <laughs> Which we're so grateful to Anchor Bay for having done that with like, I mean, I, all those Hertzog movies, those were all Anchor Bay releases. It was mm. like they came in and they were, you know, nobody really, really every, everybody thought, oh, they, they just released weird movies, but they were really doing like the Lord's mm. work. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just, you mentioned Kid Blue, so I'll just stay on like the films that Dennis Hopper was in as opposed to directed, just staying on that for a second. Your your nickname on Twitter is is Kid Blue. Uh, you played a character called Kid Blue in Looper. Uh, what, what's the connection there? Can you tell the story? I can. I'll, I'll try to make it as as short. And it's it's a very like circuitous. That's probably not that interesting to anybody. But the <laughs> the shortest version I can tell you is that as I was getting a, a education in, in film. So I was a teenager and soaking in everything that I could. I had a, a friend who was still a, a good friend of mine, a screenwriter um, named Paul Sato, uh, who now is working for Adam Sandler and writing a lot of uh, his work, uh, funny enough. But but Paul was and, and still is very much a fount of information for me for cinema. Guy just knows a lot about movies and he loves movies and he is is really one of the the folks who turned me on to these movies that I love so much these sort of American counterculture new wave films and I had you know been watching all these peck and paw films and watching you know watching Tulane Blacktop and and uh, uh, you know and, and of course Easy Rider and he said you know what movie I think you would really like you know what movie I think would resonate with you is this movie called Kid Blue 
but it's going to be hard to find. And I said, well, why do you think it would resonate with me? And he says, well, because it's sort of it's about a, it's about a, a, a guy who's an outlaw who is trying to go straight and nothing will let him. And I thought, oh, that's a compliment. That's like a very, oh, thank you for thinking of me as such a, such a, you know, when you're a, you know, 18 year old kid or whatever, you think, oh man, I'm a, I'm a rogue. I'm cool, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I tracked down this this movie at Kim's, of course, at that same video store, and I watch it, and it is an incredible movie. It's this beautiful, beautiful film that was shot by the guy who he shot Gandhi. He shot on Golden Pond, um, and and the guy who who directed it, who is like still alive and, and, and kicking today, shot the original Muppet movie uh, mm. a couple years after that. He's a director. And he, anyway, um, and, and it's just this very funny movie that sort of takes place at the turn of the century that is exactly that. It's about this guy's kid blue. He's a bandit. And he's getting too old to be like a kid. Like, it's like, would you call Billy the kid a kid, the kid if he was, you know, 30 years old, you know, or whatever. And uh, and so he goes to this town and it's the brink of the Industrial Revolution and the, the world is changing and the town is changing and he kind of doesn't really have a place. And um, and the cast is incredible. It's Hopper and one of my, probably my favorite actor in the world, uh, Warren Oates and Peter Boyle and Ben Johnson and Lee Purcell, who is still around and, and, and working uh, all the time. And it's, it's just this really fun weird western uh and so i took i took my love of this movie and i started and and paul this buddy of mine who turned me on to it starts calling me kid blue and so of course you know i start using it as a uh, as a nickname online because it's my nickname in real life and then uh i open up this script that ryan sends me one day and there's this character called kid blue <laughs> who uh fancies himself a, a cowboy and this dystopian future and uh, uh, that kind of helped immortalize it. Wow! Yeah, that that is speaking of Inception. Yeah, that it is. is def- uh, it's like the, it's like the, it's like it's like uh, uh, the definition of meta, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Like we've, we've now gone in and out like four times of, of different <laughs> levels of of reality. So uh, that sounds like it was your real in for for Dennis Hopper. You're obviously a huge fan of his first couple of films. How do you feel he, his his career goes? Like, how do you feel about sort of, you know, the out of the blue in 1980, colors in 88, and uh, and, and the films that uh, followed? Well, I love I love out of the blue. Mm. I mean, in 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 a lot of ways, I think out of the blue is is a logical sort of next step for him, and and he kind of doesn't miss a beat in that it's very much about like I forget what year it is, 79, uh, 80, 80, I think. Like, yeah, yeah. So right there. So he's he's. It, it feels like it's 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 in there and and Linda Manns. I mean, that's like one of was she only in two movies? Was she only in that and and Days of Heaven? I'm not sure because she's incredible. Hmm. So yeah, I really I really like Out of the Blue and I haven't watched Colors in I don't know probably probably ten ten years. Hmm. Yeah, so I haven't seen I haven't seen Colors in a, in a really long time. I would be interested in watching Colors today considering what we're going through politically and to sort of get an idea of especially here in los angeles to sort of get an idea of on how it stands up because of course also i mean i think at that point too 
you know, he, he did this, you know, Hopper did this thing where he sort of transitioned into this kind of conservative, I would say the best way you could describe him, the most generous way you could describe him would be libertarian. <laughs> but, you know, he became a Republican, basically. Mm. And I wonder how, how much of his conservative politics are reflected in colors. And I'd be very interested to, to, to get a, a beat on that. So I should rewatch that. As a film, it really stands up. I think it's kind of it's it's such a different film from those early films. It's very sort of tight and you know narratively kind of um, coherent, and the performances it's kind of almost old fashioned in its storytelling. But mm. uh, I think as a as a buddy cop film, it really works well. It's such a product of its time, though, with the hip hop soundtrack and you know the depiction of the gangs. Mm. But I think it's still it still works as an interesting film. Yeah, does I, th- it I think it really holds up. Racist? Does it feel mm. like a like? Does it feel like it's racially insensitive? No, it it feels like it's depicting the complexity. In it made me think a little bit of The Wire, which oh um, wow, you know. So it's got the that sort which of, I just have been have been rewatching uh, or watching. I should say watching the first time. I got to admit, hmm. I've never seen The Wire before, and I am currently it's making so my way wonderful. through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know those those first four films are even. You know, even if you don't love the last movie, there is a real sort of voice in there. You know, those those first four films are clearly the work of a, a filmmaker with a point of view and something to say. And and then sort of his his last three films sort of go, I don't want to say off the rails, but something's going on. Like his next film is actually credited to Alan Smithy. Uh, it's a film called mm-hmm. either Catch Fire or Backtrack depending on where you are in the world. Jodie Foster, you know, is this uh, this woman on the run and all these hit men who are running after her and Dennis Hopper playing a hit man who falls in love with, with Foster after <laughs> perhaps assaulting her and then she falls in love with him. It's a very, very weird film and I haven't even got to the awful saxophone playing, maybe the, the worst... <laughs> depiction of someone pretending to play a saxophone in the history of cinema. <laughs> I should uh, um, I should rewatch that for only I don't I don't recall that but I that that uh, reminds me of my my million dollar app idea which is an app that removes saxophone solos from songs. <laughs> And uh, you may be wondering, it unfortunately does not work on Bruce Springsteen songs. That's the uh, uh, <laughs> that's the only caveat. Sure, it won't work sure. on, on Bruce Springsteen songs. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, that that's that's really <laughs> really funny. And Bob Dylan turns up. I was like, oh, who's that guy who looks like Bob Dylan? Looked it up. It's Bob Dylan. There we go. As it's, as it's some, Bob Dylan. Yeah, just like some weird artist who turns up for one scene. It's. Oh, such a strange film. I, I'd love to know what the intention behind it was, because uh, certainly the final product does not indicate what the original intention was. Well, I, I do know that that era was not kind to him financially, mm. um, and that there was a lot of talk, at least that I can I can remember, uh, about him being broke and having to make choices for money. And I, I don't know if that accounts for like a movie like Chasers, mm. which I think was the last movie. He, he, yeah, correct. 1994, the, uh, a very strange, you know, comedy romp with the uh, white hot star power that of was William McNamara. Written, that was partially written by Dan Gilroy. Um, so, you know, you got to, I mean, the, it just goes to show you, you know, 
20 years later is here's a guy who's making Nightcrawler. Um, oh, right, right, right. And, uh, yeah, you know, but 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 Gil, Gilroy also, you know, much much like I think Hopper and a lot of us, you know, if this is your job, you got to put food on the table. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I, I do wonder if that accounts for a lot of these choices, you know, whether it's chasers or what did he do? There was the hot spot, which I sort of jumped out at me when I said his last three films sort of go off the rails a bit. I forgot, you know, of course, no, the hot spot is actually quite impressive. You know, there's some, I didn't personally love it, but I can see, you know, I know a lot of people I've, I've spoken to who have loved it and I can see what they've responded to this. There is some amazing stuff in here. It's sort of like a, a, a film noir in the desert, this really blazing hot uh, location and, you know, people trying to get one over on, on each other. No, I was just going to say, um, given that Easy Rider is probably your favourite Dennis Hopper film, directed film, what are the other sort of highlights for you if you had to pick maybe two? In, in terms of, of movies that he had, uh, uh, movies that he had, had directed or yeah, movies that yeah. He, oh, I mean, definitely the last movie, and and I would say uh, out of the out of the blue, but I, I I'm I'm very so I guess it was that the the first half of his directing career um, only only because I I had seen the other films and it was very obvious to me that much like a lot of his later acting work that it seemed as if it just didn't resonate the way that the earlier material does, which is the way that it is with a lot of artists. I think, mm. I think that, mm. um, you know, you can't, you know, I think a lot of people go, you know, in for a penny and for a pound, if someone is one of my favorite artists, but you know, I love Bob Dylan, but like, I probably couldn't name a lot of records or, or, or songs after street legal. It doesn't mean mm. that like, I don't love Bob Dylan. It doesn't mean Bob mm. Dylan is one. It just means that like, I don't know, like, Whenever I listen to like some mid '90s Bob Dylan, it's not hitting me the same way as, as Street Legal would. Or um, mm. you, you like know, his earlier uh, funnier uh, stuff? I like exactly. <laughs> I like the I like uh, the, the the humor uh, is what uh, what really what really gets to me um, is the uh, the humor. Uh, but also, I think you know the the something that those earlier films have in common that the that the later ones don't is that I I believe he was a writer. I believe that he was either the sole writer or a co-writer. Well, on, on Easy Rider, it was with Terry Southern, one of the great writers of, of the day. And I believe he wrote the last movie and out of the blue, mm. unless I'm totally wrong. I feel like I should look that up before I uh, go, go hard on that. Oh, he's, he's an uncredited writer on out of the blue, which I, I won't, we won't count. Okay. So yeah, he also made a couple of, of shorts he made Homeless in 2000 and Pashmai, or pa- is it Pashmai? Pashmai Dreams in 2008, the latter of which I think was a handbag commercial. I'm not 100% sure. Um, <laughs> it's kind of one of those short films, or it kind of looks like an ad that's disguised as a short film with Gwyneth Paltrow playing herself, pursued by paparazzi and a guy trying to get her bag back. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm I remember not a, that. Yeah. I remember that. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, and I, I, I think I remember seeing it on like an airplane or something. Like it was, you know, one of those things that was, you know, played as I, I, I vaguely remember that. I should look that's, that's another good use of, of now I finally find a use for YouTube. Is to look that up. <laughs> I think I've got a link. I'll, uh, I'll send it to you. Um, Please do, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was a shame he didn't get to keep making films. He talked. I found an interview where he talked about how he really wanted to keep directing films, but he just wasn't 
given the opportunity, no one really wanted to to sort of fund his his filmmaking, which is a bit of a shame. Well, and and uh, you know, if you if you look at, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't call it the last half. I would say you know the last I don't know twenty twenty years of his career. You know, he really was kept working by other filmmakers who were in in a way kind of paying tribute to him, mm. you know, and paying tribute to what he had had helped create. You know, I, I can't imagine that working on Rumblefish or Osterman Weekend or Blue Velvet, you know what I mean, mm. was was or, or Straight to Hell, you know, <laughs> um, I can't imagine like working on those films. He's not sort of being cared for mm. by these filmmakers who were still probably reeling from Easy Rider. You know, they, they, you know, these guys were, were, well, I don't know, I guess he and Coppola were, I, don't, I wonder what the age difference was there, but like, I mean, Alex Cox was younger than him. I can't imagine that Alex Cox isn't thinking, I owe, I owe, you know, X, Y, and Z to Easy Rider, the last movie and, 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 uh, and all the Westerns that he had worked on as well. You know, he also was a, was a, representative i think of sort of bridging you know bridging two two time you know two eras in cinema because mm. he was sort of he was never a matinee idol but you know in the 50s and working on giant and working on rebel without a cause you know he was sort of like and and naked city right like working on cool serials and and the, you know noir serials and stuff like that like i just feel like he probably represented at least he represents to me a guy who had been present for and involved in many more than just one movement. Mm. Mm. So when are we uh, when are we going to see the first Noah Segan joint? <laughs> uh, when are you going to see? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that uh, uh, in the next year or two I get to make a movie. I mean, I'm I'm trying to make one right now, and. Um, it is uh it's a slow but very fulfilling process Mm -hmm. and um you know i I, i'm very i'm very confident that i can do it i just uh somebody's just gotta gotta let me do it but that's part of the process is is uh uh, putting it together and and finding people to work with and Mm -hmm. finding people who want to pay for it and all that stuff so you know that's something that i have to remind myself frequently that even my very good friends who are accomplished filmmakers have to go through you know part part of the crazy thing about making movies or one of the crazy things about making movies whether you are the filmmaker and you're sort of the boss or whether you are just a a, an employee sort of hired for the gig is that every time you start a job you're starting from nothing Mm. um and uh uh that is a very useful tool to have is that you go, you know, I've got some great experience and I, I, I know a lot of people I can get advice from. And, you know, I might know that, that that's hot and that's cold, uh, w- whatever the case may be, but you're still starting kind of from scratch. Mm. Well, we are looking forward to it. And, uh, and we are very grateful that, uh, you joined us on the show today. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. Oh, I'm, I'm so yeah, happy thanks, to Noah. Have, uh, Oh, thank thank you guys. I, I'm, 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 I was really honored that uh, that you uh, wanted to speak with me, and I, I hope I've I've done um, I hope I've, I've I've done your you guys justice. You know, I hope I've. It's been uh, great. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I now know uh, I'm now a fan of Dennis Hopper, which is the uh, the purpose of each episode is to turn us into fans of the filmmaker if we're not already. So uh, mission accomplished. Oh, good, good. Well, uh, go. Uh, Watch his uh, star turn in Super Mario Brothers and, yep. and thank you later. <laughs>
<laughs> Terrible advice. Um, all right. <laughs> Thanks, Noah, and we will see the rest of you next month. Bye. Yeah, I gotta go make it out.